All right, we're going to be talking about biblical sexuality tonight, biblical sexuality. And uh, so that's the topic. So we're going to discuss among ourselves. I want to hear what you have to say because you're Christians. And uh, hopefully you have a biblical worldview. Hopefully you formed your opinions on biblical sexuality from the Bible, hence biblical sexuality, and that you're not... uh, uh, formed and shaped by the culture of this world that has a whole different understanding of sexuality than the Bible. We understand that. And it's a hostile culture, and it's a sens- sexual culture. And what the world says is right to do or what they admire or promote is different than what the Bible teaches. So we're going to talk about biblical sexuality. So I'm going to ask you questions. You're going to give some responses back. And uh, then after I hear from you on all these questions, uh, I'm then going to teach what the Bible teaches, what I believe the Bible teaches, and so we can learn and grow together, all right? So the first question is this. What does the Bible teach about sinful sexuality? What does the Bible teach about sinful sexuality? So this this could just be one word, answers right now, and you can just shout it out. What is sinful sexuality? I'll start with one. Bestiality. The Bible in the book of Leviticus says... That a man or a woman shall not have sex with an animal. And thank God our culture hasn't gone there yet. Would you guys say amen to that? But that is sinful sexuality. Another, another one. Yes. Really, it's anything outside of covenant marriage. Husband and wife. Anything outside of the covenant marriage. So let's say, let's say fornication. Fornication. Two people have two people that are unmarried having sex. The Bible calls that fornication. That's sinful sexuality. Somebody else? Somebody else? So we got fornication, we got bestiality. Is there any other type of sinful sexuality out there? You guys don't want to participate? You do. Okay, Becky. Incest. Very good. Very good. Incest, right? Having relations a close family. Close family. Stuart has one, homosexuality, that also is, according to the scriptures, sinful sexuality. So we got bestiality, we got fornication. Isn't this an edifying teaching tonight? <laughs> bestiality. <laughs> We're really getting into it. Bestiality. What, what are bestiality, fornication, incest, homosexuality? Excuse me, adultery, which would be a married person. Having sex outside of marriage. Fornication would be too unmarried. Adultery is a married person having sex outside of that covenant relationship. And I'm, going to, I'm thinking of one more. Yes. Pornography. Pornography. That's what I'm thinking. Pornography. Absolutely. Very good. Let me ask you this question. Is sex outside of marriage wrong? Why or why not? Who wants to answer that question and give me a biblical response rather than just, yes, it is. Uh, Is sex outside of marriage wrong? Who wants to answer that question? Ben's going to answer that question. You got to mic him up because it's going to be longer than a yes or a no. But not too long. Stand up, speak up. So, yes, and the verse that came to mind was in Hebrews where it talked about the marriage bed is undefiled. It's not some other bed. Any other bed would be defiled, then you would say. Okay, so he's talking about a quote out of Hebrews that uh, marriage is honorable unto all and the bed undefiled, but adulterers and fornicators God will judge. That's a very good verse. Anybody else want to answer this? Is sex outside of marriage wrong? Is it ever right? Is it ever right? Somebody raise their hand and answer that question. Is it ever right? Uh, back in the very back, John, uh, give it there to Steve. No, it's never. I'm sorry. It's, it's never right outside of marriage, ever. And why do you say that? The Bible tells me that. Just don't ask me exactly where, but I know I've read it multiple times. But, yeah, it's very clear that it's God's laws. It's strictly within marriage with a man and a wife. 
Okay, very good. And uh, he's a little, little uh, unsure of where scripture verse is. Somebody give, uh, give us a scripture verse that tells us sex outside of marriage is wrong or, or sinful. My wife has one right here. First Thess- Thessalonians 4, 3, uh, and Paul wrote and he said, uh, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Abstain from fornication. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Very good. Thank you. Thank you very, good. very much. All right. Let me ask you another question. Does love or consent sanctify or make it right before God uh, sexual relations? Does love or consent? It's two consenting adults. Or they love each other. You know, don't have sex until the time is right. You'll know when the time is right. It doesn't even have anything to do with marriage. You'll just know when the time is right. Do you love them? You need to save it for the person you love. Or it's two consenting adults. Who are we to say it's wrong? Isn't that the philosophy of the world? Don't you hear that? So, so does love or consent sanctify sexuality? Does love or consent sanctify sexuality? Yes, Mr. Wig. I think you get, just gave the de- definition of fornication. I just gave the best defini- definition. Uh, can you explain that to us? What was that? Why was that the best definition? Well, it was uh, sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage. Okay. It's fornication. It's fornication. So you would say that love or consent does not sanctify it, does not make it right, does not make it holy in the sight of God. No. Okay, he says no. He says no. Anybody else want to answer that question? And uh, maybe biblically. You can think of a scripture verse. Go ahead. Um, the Bible makes it very clear that love and lust are two different things. Love is pure. And in 1 Corinthians, it talks about love. And love is laying yourself down for another person. That means putting their needs and wants above your own. But lust, obviously, is not love. So if it's outside a covenant, you're lusting after them. You're not loving them because love is pure and sanctified and set apart and holy. It's saving yourself. It's laying your life down for the Lord and keeping your remaining pure. So anything outside of that is really just lust. Okay, very good. Do you guys agree with that? That's well said. I like that. I like that. All right, let me ask you another question. Why did God create sex and limit it to marriage? Because we're in our conversation... I think, uh, Ben, you quoted Hebrews chapter 13. The marriage bed is undefiled, right? Marriage is honor under all and the bed undefiled. Uh, Why did God create sex and limit it to marriage? Why did God create sex and limit it to marriage? Why do you think that is? Mr. Steve. I'll go to Ephesians 5, and my phone just lost the scripture, or I lost it. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So marriage pictures that wonderful relationship that we Uh, have with Christ and one day will be totally fulfilled when we are glorified and we see him as he is. We are the bride of Christ. And so there's to be no one, there's to be no other God. And uh, so there should be no other spouse. Mm -hmm. All right. Very good. No other God, no other spouse. I like that. Why did God create sex and limit it to marriage? Lisa, you have one to say? Go ahead. I do. And I don't have the scripture, but I do know that his, his reasons, to me, is very clear in society. Sexually transmitted disease wouldn't exist. AIDS wouldn't exist. Mar- uh, babies out of wedlock wouldn't exist. It wouldn't exist if it was confined to marriage, simply put. Uh, so, yeah, he confines it to marriage to, because when it's outside of marriage, it produces all kinds of 
Bad fruit, right? Produces bad fruit. Anybody else? That's good. That's good. Oh, way over there. Very good. Thank you. He's got a microphone for you. Sorry, I'm sorry. Thank you. To bring forth a godly seed, it's in, I believe, 1 Corinthians. It might be 7. To bring forth a godly seed. It's to bring forth godly children. And so, yes. And that's also an Old Testament uh, passage in the prophets that mentions how uh, God created a covenant relationship to produce godly offspring. And so God wants, you know, when you you have sex, obviously there's the idea of procreation. There's children that are born. And the, the absolute, don't you think the absolute best way to raise them is with a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. So that's a permanent relationship. It's a home of covenant. You can raise it in the faith that's best for the kids. Okay, go ahead. I have that verse here, actually. Uh, Malachi 3, 14, 15, 16. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you've dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant, like you were saying, not by feeling. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Yes. Is that you say that was in Malachi? Yeah, that's the passage I was. Yes, it's an Old Testament passage. Yes. So marriage is a covenant and it's designed to bring man and woman together in a lifelong commitment, a covenant relationship between God and them, and it's designed to produce God the offspring. That's right, the procreation. Be fruitful and multiply, right? All right, let me ask you another question here. How would you define marriage? How would you define marriage? Marriage is two people in love. Uh, Nate's got a definition for marriage. Well, I, I just got a scripture to kind of piggyback off that and what you're talking about marriage where it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So before the word marriage was even invented, the, the term that was used in, in Genesis was joined and becoming one flesh. And so that's the, the purpose and, and the, the point of marriage is to be joined together, even before the word marriage was invented. Okay, so marriage is a joining a together joining. or a union. Yes. Very good. And in that passage, what is it a union of? Uh, a husband, uh, two people. Two uh, people, yes. and they are? Man and wife, yes. Or if male and female. Yes. All right. So marriage is a union between a man and a woman for life. You guys like that definition? Marriage is in, and the passage out of Malachi talks about covenant. So I always like to put the word covenant in there. Marriage is a covenant union between one man, one woman for life. Covenant relationship before God between one man, one woman for life. You guys like that definition? Okay, let me give you one more question. It's Gay Pride Month. I'm sure you see all the commercials and corporations, sports teams, TV, gay pride parades, all that. What should be a Christian's response to the Gay Pride Month? What should be the Christian's response to the Gay Pride Month? I'm sure you have some type of response on the inside. Maybe in your, your work or business, uh, you have to be a part of it in some way or keep your mouth shut. Or, I don't know. Anyway, should we be supportive? Should we be condemning? Should we keep quiet? Should we be prayerful? Should we witness? Should we buy 40 acres in the UP and get out of uh, the culture altogether and, uh, uh, you know, just... Uh, you know, just isolate ourselves, get off the grid, as it were. Uh, what should be the Christian response to gay pride? We got one back there, Tom. Back up, leaning up against the wall back there. We need to love the sinner and hate the sin. The Christian response is love the 
Love the sinner and hate the sin. Okay. Yes. tell my daughters there's a reason why two women can't make a baby obviously and God made it perfectly for a man to fit inside of a woman I'm sorry for being graphic but that's the only way to actually make a baby in the right way you know what I mean and in covenant so I always tell them like you know we need to love them the same way but you know hate the sin but let our lifestyle reflect Christ and I have a few people that are like that in my work, and you just, I'm really good friends with them, but I always make it known that I'm a Christian if, you know, they ask or anything like that, and I love Jesus, and I just let my lifestyle reflect that, so. Okay, so love the sinner, hate the sin, live a lifestyle of Christianity in front of them, be their friend? You said they're their friend? I would be an acquaintance to them. Like, I would never, it's hard to say, like, because if someone asked me to go shopping with them, as long as I'm not sinning or doing something that's wrong in my heart, I probably would use that discernment for the Holy Spirit to be an opportunity to open up to them. Okay. But I wouldn't, they would know firmly. I wouldn't, like, go somewhere that would cause me to sin if they asked me to go with them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I don't know how to really... Very good, very good. Anybody else have, Lisa's got uh, something to say? I do. I have gay, I have, um, gay friends. I have, I've had many gay co-workers. Um, they know that I love them. They know that I do not support their lifestyle. Um, I How do they to, know that? Because I've told them. Okay, I've, you I've speak told to them? I've told them that, you know what, I love you. God loves you. Jesus loves you. But he says that it's wrong, and I'm, I'm just agreeing with his word. That does not change my love for you. And it's a difference of, you know, going to a gay wedding versus participating in a gay wedding. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's, that, there's that line where they know where I stand. I'm loving them. Uh, I want to be there to shine a light and to have conversation. Those are sometimes some of the best places to have a conversation that can be spoken in love and, and not to promote hatred um, because that's obviously what everybody wants to go to right away. Um, but you can speak the truth in love. They can know where you stand, and you can still love them. Mm-hmm. You know, so, like getting a card, for example, for someone who's gay getting married. It's a very difficult thing. There's, a, there's as many gay cards out there now that I have seen as there are heterosexual cards for weddings. And I can get a card that, that says, you know, here's something for your new home, not... God bless your marriage. I mean, there is that line where you just make a line in the sand, and I'm not going to promote it. I don't agree with it, but I'm going to love them. Okay, so love the sinner, hate the sin, live the lifestyle in front of them, speak the truth in love. Anybody have anything else to add to that? I'm just, yes, Dana has something to add to that. I was just thinking that when you talk about it being Gay Pride Month, I've never seen going into stores like Meyer and going into stores, these huge stands that are there. And I think that also, in addition to things that people have said, this is a time for us to be very aware that um, this is the end times. Good has become bad and bad has become good. And so not only do we love the sinner and hate the sin, but we pray we pray, uh-huh. <laughs> we pray. So we need a, you know, a move of God and also come quickly, Lord, come quickly, you know. So, so pray for a revival, renewal, and Jesus, get me out of here. Jesus, come quickly. Is that what that means? Get me out of here? Uh, an awareness. I like that about praying. Yes. It seems to be very strong this year, stronger than ever. Is it just me? It does seem to be very strong, and uh, obviously our culture really does promote it, and uh, it's a hostile culture to Christianity anymore. All right, well, those are the questions. I'm going to go through these, all right? We got about 30 more minutes. What does the Bible teach about sinful sexuality? Fornication, I believe my wife uh, read part of this verse in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 8. I think we have it uh, up there. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that word sanctification can be translated holiness, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. 
And sexual immorality is it's the word pornea, which is all kinds of immorality, which would include fornication and adultery and homosexuality. That each, of, each one of you should know how to possess his own vessel, that's your body and its desires, in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust. I think if somebody mentions the difference between love and lust, right? Like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner. So if you're in relationship with somebody, you don't want to take advantage of them in the area of sex. You don't want to... Uh, yeah. Uh, lead them into this. You don't want to encourage them into this. You don't want to make demands on them to do anything that is sinful in the sight of God. Don't want to take advantage of anybody because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who also given us his Holy Spirit. So as Christians, we need to realize we have the Holy Spirit. We're not supposed to lead somebody into sexual immorality, promote this in somebody's life. We're not supposed to tempt somebody to engage in sexual immorality with us. We're called upon to possess our vessel, our body, and all of its desires in a God-honoring, God-pleasing way. And if, if you disagree with this, uh, you're not rejecting man, because Paul wrote this. And Paul basically is saying, listen, you're not rejecting me, you're rejecting God. I mean, this is God's will. This is the will of God. This is the writings of Scripture, all right? Adultery, Exodus 20, verse 14, literally says, as part of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. Matthew 19, verse 9, Jesus' words, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So Jesus is speaking about the idea there is the Ten Commandments say I can't commit adultery. So I can't, I'm married, and I can't have sex with that, let's say I'm a man. I'm married, I and I'm I'm lusting after that woman, and I know if I have sex with that woman while married, I'm violating the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. Therefore, since I don't want to commit adultery, I will divorce my wife, marry her, and it'll be right. And Jesus says, that is impure. That is committing adultery. You're not supposed to. Divorce your spouse to marry another. That makes sense? Well, I'm married, but I'm in love with this person, so I'll divorce this person and marry this person. The Bible says that is also adultery. You can't, not, you can't make your lust right with God by divorcing your spouse and marrying a person you've fallen in love with so that that relationship can then be right with God. That relationship is not right with God. You guys tracking that? Okay, so we got uh, fornication. What does the Bible have to say about pornography? Well, the classic verse is Matthew 5, 28. Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Obviously, pornography uh, is the lusting after those images. It's the violating of Jesus' commandment there in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 28. Homosexuality, that also is sinful sexuality according to the scriptures. Let me give you some common arguments that Christians make for homosexuality. Because there is a movement among Christians that believe that homosexuality can be right with God. That even homosexual marriage can be sacred. And I don't think the Bible teaches that at all. And uh, so I've read what they've had to say. And these are some of the arguments that Christians, professing Christians, make concerning homosexuality as not being sinful. Number one, I don't agree with this, but I'm just telling you what they say, all right? Number one, Jesus never condemned homosexuality. They say that a lot. 
Jesus never, like if you have a Bible, I have a Bible here, and I have a red letter edition. The red letters are the words of Jesus. And then the letters in black, the words in black are not the words of Jesus. And so they say in the words of Jesus, which would be in the red letters, uh, he never addressed the issue of homosexuality. And he didn't. Jesus did not specifically address the issue of homosexuality by his own words. But John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, right? The same was in the beginning with God. So the word is Jesus Christ. So can you say that Jesus is the living word? He's the personification of the word. So even though he might not have said it specifically, the Bible addresses the issue of homosexuality, of which Jesus is the personification of the word of God. So in that sense, if it's in the Bible, God addresses it. Jesus is God. Jesus addresses it. Does that make sense? And also, he says this, the Lord says this. This is in a roundabout way. Matthew 19. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? For this reason, a man shall leave father and mother, be joined to his wife, that's in covenant, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a sexual relationship. So there, Jesus says, sex is between one man, one woman, in marriage, and that's how it's limited. It's limited to that. So in a roundabout way, Jesus condemned gay marriage and homosexual relationships and all sex outside of marriage in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. A second common argument for homosexuality that professing Christians might make is this. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was lack of hospitality, not the sin of homosexuality. And the passage they use is Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50. I know this is not a a praise the Lord type of message, but we're just inundated with this in our culture. I just feel the need. I just need to teach you it, all right? Uh, Ezekiel 16, verses 49 to 50. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride fullness of food, and abundance of idleness, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. So if you, know, if you recall the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the man is passing through, and uh, a person opens up his home to this stranger, to this, to this people, and uh, the townspeople see that, and then they want to have sex with them. Isn't that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? No, I'm sorry. I'm I'm confusing that with another passage of Scripture. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Excuse me? Yes, Lot. Thank you very much. Lot. That's right. And uh, so what they'll say is, because in the culture, showing hospitality to strangers was so important, and that there was a lack of hospitality to the strangers that were there when men wanted to engage in sexual relations. Uh, And so that's what was judged, was not the actual homosexuality, but inhospitality. But the scripture says, and that is, that was wrong, of course, but the book of Jude says this, Jude 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Jude 7 literally says that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was sexual immorality and going after strange flesh, and that's why they suffered the vengeance of eternal fire. The strange flesh is man with man or woman with woman. That's the strange flesh. So the New Testament tells us the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah in Jude 7 was not just a lack of hospitality or love of strangers, but literally sexual immorality going after strange flesh. Another way, a common argument they'll use, number one, that Jesus never condemned homosexuality. 
but the Bible does, and that is the reflection of who Jesus is. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was lack of hospitality, but it was more than that. The Bible literally says it was due to sexual immorality or homosexuality. The, the third common argument that professing Christians might make is this. It would be sin for a homosexual to have heterosexual relations. Now, a number of years ago, I actually listened to a professing Christian make this point. That in Romans chapter 1, it says this in verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged, listen to this, the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful. So the person turned that around and said, I was born with these desires. I'm a homosexual. That is my creative identity. I would be violating my natural creative identity if I then, as a man, would have sex with a woman. That would be unnatural. And he quoted Romans chapter 1, the passage of Scripture I just read. Well, my, my response to that is, is the Bible is not talking in that way. It's literally telling you in Romans 1, 26 and 27, that women with women is against nature, and men with men is against nature. That that's what is against nature, right? It's not talking about a homosexual having relations with a woman being against his nature. That's not what's being talked about there. What is being condemned is men with men and women with women. That's what is unnatural. That makes sense? All right, so... I dealt with fornication, adultery, pornography, homosexuality. Let's go, go to the next question. Is sex outside of marriage wrong? Yes, it is. It always is. Hebrews 13.4 is the passage that I had that Ben mentioned. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. That's Hebrews 13 verse 4. Many people believe that they want to live together to evaluate compatibility. If you ask them, this is the number one reason is given. Why are you living with that person? Well, we're, we are test driving. We are seeing if we're good together. We, 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 we don't want to live apart, and then when we get married, it'd be the first time that we're living together. We want to try this out. We, we need to see if we're compatible, see if this can really make this thing work. The, the problem with that is this. Uh, they've done studies. The divorce rate is higher for those that lived together before marriage than those that did not live together before marriage. It's actually higher. It actually doesn't work. Living together to prove, to see if you're compatible is not the way for lifetime or long-term commitment or relationship. The divorce rate is higher, according to the studies, for those that live together before they're married, even though they think that that's the wisest way to go. But it's not the wisest way to go, because you can never improve on God's plan. Am I right about that? You can never improve on God's plan. Did you know Barna did a survey in 2019... Of those that say they're evangelical Christians, an evangelical Christian is a, what you would say, a Bible-believing Christian. Not someone just says, I'm born in America, you know, of course I'm a Christian. They're a Bible-believing Christian. That's an evangelical believer. Barna did a study, 58% of evangelical believers say living together is morally acceptable if the couple plans to marry. That's one reason why I'm doing this thing tonight. Because that, that's not right. Even though you're planning on getting married, remember, love or consent does not sanctify sex. Marriage 
sanctifies the marital relations, not love or consent. So 58% of evangelicals believe that it's okay to have to live together, to have sexual relations before you're married if you are planning on getting married. The Bible doesn't teach that. Let me read you Jesus' words. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. The woman answered said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. And that you spoke truly. So she was living with a man. And Jesus says, that man is not your husband. Living together does not constitute marriage. Otherwise, he would say, you have six husbands. You've had five husbands. You're married to five men. And the man you're living with right now is not your husband. So common law marriage, that's two people cohabiting, without actually getting married, does not constitute marriage in the eyes of Jesus. Some may say, amen. All right. Let's go on. So we, we've decide, we've, we have defined what the Bible teaches about sinful sexuality, fornication, adultery, pornography, homosexuality. We've looked at common arguments that professing Christians sometimes make to affirm homosexuality is right before God and how we don't believe those. We don't believe the Bible teaches that. Is sex outside of marriage wrong? We've answered that question. Yes, it's always wrong. Does love or consent sanctify sexuality? We've touched on this quite a bit. But I'm going to read to you a passage of Scripture in Proverbs chapter 7. It's a passage of Scripture that deals with an adulterous woman enticing or harlot, a prostitute, enticing a man to come sleep with her. Proverbs 7, 18 and 19. She says to him, come. So she's tempting him. Let us take our fill of love until morning. Let, our, let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. So here she is using her feminine wiles to tempt this man. She's married because she says my husband is not at home. She's married. She's using her feminine wiles to tempt him, and she uses the word love. Come, let us take our fill of love. Let us delight ourselves with love. Now, Proverbs 7 is condemning this behavior, condemning this action. So if she, if it was a love relationship, here she is married, and she's in love with this other man, let's do this. Let's just love one another. The Bible says that that love is not sanctioned or blessed by God. He condemns it in Proverbs chapter 7. So love or consent does not sanctify sexual relations. Does that make sense? All right. Next question. Why did God create sex and limit it to marriage? Well, he created sex for pleasure. He created sex for intimacy and created sex for procreation. He created it for pleasure because God is good. The Bible says, let the husband render to his wife the affection do her. It's pleasurable. It's the sharing of affection. And likewise, also the wife to her husband, the scripture says. So it's created for pleasure. Why did God create sex? For pleasure between a, a husband and a wife. He created it for intimacy. The Bible says they shall be joined to each other and they shall become one flesh. One flesh. Intimacy. Intimacy. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1, uh, he says, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. 
I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. So this is the man talking. Right before that, at the end of chapter 4, the woman is talking to him. And he says, come into your garden. Come and eat and drink and have your fill. In other words, she is welcoming him into the sexual relationship. And he gladly went into the sexual relationship says, I have come. And so it's talking about this intimacy between a man and a woman. So God created sex for pleasure, for intimacy, and also for procreation. Be fruitful and multiply, God said to the Man and the woman there in the garden, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. So God created sex for pleasure, for intimacy, and for procreation. And he limited it to marriage because it's in that covenant, lifelong relationship between a man and woman that creates the picture of Christ and his church. I think Pastor Steve mentioned that. And also gives the secure enduring foundation of which to raise children. That makes sense? Okay, let's go on here. How would you define marriage? Marriage is a covenant relationship before God of one man and one woman for life. You know, in the, in the Old Testament, polygamy was tolerated but never commanded you know, David had many wives. Solomon had 700 wives. Uh, Jacob had two wives. Uh, we know that, Rachel and Leah. Uh, it was tolerated, but it violated, ultimately, Genesis 1. Therefore, a man shall leave father and mother and be joined to his wife. It doesn't say wives, plural, but singular, a man and a woman. Uh, we have laws against polygamy. Uh, many nations do. Whenever there's more than one wife in the Old Testament, there always was trouble. Makes sense, doesn't it? One is enough trouble. <laughs> more than one, there's lots of trouble there. So whenever there's more than one, there's trouble. You know, with, with uh, Rachel and, and Leah, I mean, they're in competition with each other. And uh, it's creating tension between the two of them, between the, him and, and Jacob. And then you add in the concubines. And Abraham was Sarah. He had the one wife. But then he had the concubine, Hagar. And she wants him to have relations with Hagar. He consents to that. Now there's tensions between Hagar and Sarah. And they have to cast out that woman and, and uh, Ishmael. And so so there, and Solomon had all those wives. They turned his heart away from God. David had multiple wives, and uh, he was a distant, distracted father, and just was never good. It was never good. And so marriage is supposed to be between one man, one woman, in covenant that they make before God with each other for a lifetime, right? Marriage is, listen to this, rooted in creation, Reiterated throughout Scripture, repeated by Jesus, representative of Christ and his church, and reflective of the gospel. Marriage between one man, one woman for life is rooted in creation. He created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. Reiterated throughout Scripture, that's what God throughout Scripture says marriage is one man, one woman. Repeated by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, in the beginning he made them male and female. Representative of Christ in his church in Ephesians chapter 5. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in his church. That's in Ephesians chapter 5. And reflective of the gospel. It is. The Song of Solomon. The man loves the woman, and the woman loves the man. And it's more than a picture of human love. The man represents Christ. The woman represents the bride, his church. And so Song of Solomon, marriage is reflective really of the gospel, God's love for us. Amen to that? What should be the Christian response to Gay Pride Month? Well, we're smack dab in the middle of it. Culture says you must affirm it. Or you're a hater. That's what our culture says. You got to affirm it or you're a hater. In other words, if you don't get on board and affirm this and celebrate this, 
then what the, you're a homophobic, right? You're a hater. That's, that's really the two options that we have according to the culture. You got to climb on board and, and yes, or the culture thinks you're a hater. But I think there's another way. We care what God thinks about us first and foremost, right? Lot, who lived in Sodom, the Bible says his righteous soul was vexed. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Did you know that word vex means sick, tortured, tormented, distressed? So when you see all of this, you feel grieved, right? This isn't right. This isn't good. I think Dana, did she leave us? Dana was talking about this. You know, you see all this and you start praying and you want Jesus to come back and you realize that our culture is promoting and celebrating something that the Bible condemns. And uh, we are in this world, but we're not of this world. And so it vexes us. It, it grieves the spirit. We sense that. I'm not the only one, am I? I'm not the only one. The Tampa Bay baseball players, the Tampa Bay uh, organization, uh, they came out with uh, the gay pride stickers that they wanted to put on their uniforms. And five of them said, you know, we're not going to do this. The rest of the baseball players did. And uh, one of the baseball players he wanted to explain their decision to not wear the gay pride patch. He says this, A lot of it comes down to faith, to like a faith-based decision, said Adam, a 30-year-old in his fifth major league season. So it's a hard decision, because ultimately we all said what we want is them to know that all are welcome and loved here. But when we put it on our bodies, I think a lot of guys decided it's just a lifestyle that maybe... Not that they look down on anybody or think differently. It's just that maybe we won't want to encourage it if we believe in Jesus, who's encouraged us to live a lifestyle that would abstain from that behavior, just like Jesus encourages me as a heterosexual male to abstain from sex outside of the confines of marriage. It's no different. It's not judgmental. It's not looking down, Adam continued. It's just what we believe the lifestyle he encouraged us to live for our good, not to withhold. But again, we love these men and women. We care about them, and we want them to feel safe and welcome here. Well, that's a pretty good statement. I think he explained his predicament. He's a believer. He doesn't want to wear a gay pride patch because he doesn't want to affirm or promote a lifestyle that his faith says is wrong or sinful. But he'd rather affirm his faith, and so he doesn't want to put that. At the same time, he says, you know, we love them, and we're friends with them, and we're not trying to be judgmental of them. It's just that our faith does not allow us to celebrate this or to affirm this. I'm going to close with these two things. Jesus loves sinners without approving of their actions. You guys agree with that? Didn't he love you? And he loved me, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus disagreed with sinners, yet still loved them. And so he, he then becomes the model, right? That we can, we can disagree and still love people. And also we can... We can love them without approving of everything that's happening. And I think that's what I try to do. You know, I don't celebrate it. I don't affirm it. But I reject the fact that they might think I'm a hater. And I want to build a bridge so that I can witness to them, win them to Christ. The doors are open. Whosoever will may come. And if they come through those doors... Jesus was a friend of sinners. Let's be friends of all who come through those doors. Because if they're coming through those doors as sinners, then we have the answer for their sin, Jesus Christ. Amen to that? And uh, so let's not be haters. Let's be lovers of God and lovers of what's right. But God commands all men everywhere to repent. And so that's the message to every gay person that comes in this church. What do they need to do? Repent and believe on Jesus. And what does every heterosexual need to do? 
repent and believe on Jesus. The cross is level ground. And uh, being gay is not unpardonable sin. And neither is being a, a fornicator an unpardonable sin. So all have sinned. And so the gospel is offered to all. We need to be a church that welcomes all to come in and yet does not compromise the gospel. We ask them, as we do everybody, to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. 1 Corinthians 5 basically tells us that sexual sin, if permitted in the church and embraced or celebrated, it becomes a leaven. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So we live in a culture that embraces all this, and the people in our church are from the culture, but we need to make sure our attitude and outlook and perspective is a biblical perspective. And so we don't want to Say, no, this is good now. We're okay with it. We're okay with it. This is all right. The culture, you know, the gospel needs to be malleable, and the Word of God needs to bend to the cultural changes that are happening. I'll tell you what, if, if we don't stand on the Word and uphold the Word, but we bend to culture, and what the culture says is now right, we will cease to be a church, because the church is the pillar and ground of truth. We'll cease to be a church and we'll cease to have God's blessing and God's anointing. He'll take the candlestick away from us. You know, he'll take the candlestick away from us. And I don't want to take the candlestick. Candlestick is what shines the light. I want to be a light bearer for Jesus. I want a cornerstone to be a light bearer for Jesus. Amen? All right, praise the Lord. Let's all stand. Let's all stand. Wasn't this a just a... It was a fun night, wasn't it? This was great. But anyway, I just wanted to minister what I thought is Bible, dealing with these sexual issues, get a firm grip of what is biblical sexuality, trying to just put that in you. It's so easy to be turned or begin to embrace the culture. Remember, they say what's good is evil, what evil is good. They turn it all upside down. Well, we know the truth. Let's walk in the truth and let's speak the truth in love. Let's close with this worship song.